Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSI Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least to not piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, now is your time to subscribe to Nimsy Insights uh, on your platform of choice. We are coming to you live today on X, Twitter, uh, Facebook, fa uh, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Of course, most folks join us over on LinkedIn in the live event. If that's you, then make sure that you are leaving your questions and comments in the comment section during the live stream and talking to each other, networking during the event. And we can bring those up on screen somehow. We will bring your comments up on screen during the stream and address those as they come up. Before we get into today's topic, I wanted to uh, give a quick shout out to Multilingual Magazine because today's uh, conversation is following up on an article from Multilingual Magazine uh, where we interviewed Loy. Cyril, our guest today, and it's called The Art of Improvement. It's on page 43 of the magazine. So if you're following along in the June issue, the one with Sasan on the cover, you can follow along over on page 43, and we're going to be diving deeper into the things that were discussed there today. And speaking of Multilingual Magazine, there's a number of different ways that you can connect with Multilingual Magazine. The first, of course, is the magazine itself. We all know and love that one. But also over at multilingual.com, many folks don't know this, we have daily industry news that is being published. It's available for everybody, subscriber or not. Daily industry news available at multilingual.com. There's also a podcast, so um, which I love especially for accessibility reasons. If you're not big on reading the news every day, you can go check out Localization Today, which is a podcast you can subscribe to on your platform of choice. Here we have uh, Apple Podcast version right here, and you can just listen to an audio version of the daily news. If that's too much for you, we also have a week in review available on our YouTube channel over at Multilingual Media, and I highly recommend you you go check that out. And I just wanted to give you guys a quick taste of this because this is a, a new thing that Multilingual Magazine is doing. So I'll show you what that's all about here. It's news in the language services industry. I'm your host, Eddie Arrieta. Let's dive right in. Respond Crisis Translation, a language justice collective of 2,500 translators and interpreters, is closing the gap for asylum seekers lacking basic translation and interpretation access within the U.S. asylum system. Read this story at teamvogue.com. Also, some people who worked on translating Baltar's Gate 3 into Brazilian Portuguese for several years ended up missing from the game's credits. Larian eventually added the names of the translators previously uncredited by localization firm Altacron, 
Go to GameWorldServer.com for more information. And this week, the Justice Department released an updated department-wide language access plan to help ensure that all individuals, regardless of language use, have access to and are able to fully participate in the department's programs, activities, and services. Read all about it at justice.gov. Finally, project leaders at the MIT Language Acquisition Lab said their research could shed new light on the nature of language learning. Funds from the Levitan Prize have made it possible for the lab to collect initial data for a multi-study endeavor over a few years. The project could now be developed into a major grant proposal. You can read this story at news.mit.edu. Catch up on that and press releases from Bilingual Global, Phrase and Translated by visiting multilingual.com where you will also find our latest issue in its digital version. This has been the Week in Review. Remember to leave your comments and questions below and subscribe to our channels for more language industry updates. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you, Eddie. So that's just a quick taste for you of what's available over at, uh, on Multilingual's YouTube channel, which is just a great resource that many people didn't know about, so I wanted to make you aware of that. But without further ado, let's jump into today's topic. Our conversation today is going to sp span a broad spectrum as we are speaking with a very experienced industry veteran who has a lot to say on a lot of topics. This conversation is following a re the recent published interview with her, as I mentioned, that's in the June issue on page 42. We're going to explore the intricate workings of the language services value chain. And for those of you who've never wondered about the subtleties that go into ensuring high quality translations, we're delving deep into the nuance and practice of quality. But it's not just about the art, it's also about the business. We're gonna be discussing the nitty gritty of budgets, funding, and the challenges of managing procurement in this industry. Lastly, choosing the right partners is crucial, so we're going to touch upon vendor selection, how to manage internal stakeholders effectively, and of course, we'll round off our conversation by discussing the joys and rewards that come from dedicating oneself to this awesome industry. We're in for a treat today because I am joined by Loy Searle. Loy knows a thing or two about driving efficiency in localization work, and no wonder. She's honed her professional philosophy over two decades of experience working with major business players and experience with all sides of the market. She's chartered, charted a career learning at companies like J.D. Edwards, Intuit, Google, Deluxe Entertainment Services, and more. I once heard her describe herself as a localization fixer who loves taking on new challenges and solving problems. And she is, I would say, uniquely positioned to understand the professional process from beginning to end. Loy, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining oh. us today. Thanks, Tucker. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, did I leave anything out from that introduction? Uh, no, I, I think I think it might be somebody else you're talking about, but thanks. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, that's when I hear people introduce me, I think the same thing. I'm like, wow, I sound really good on paper. Who, who is that? <laughs> good thing who they haven't that? met me yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for uh, your con your contribution to the recent article of Multilingual, and not so recent anymore. It was back in June, but I really enjoyed reading a little bit more about your perspectives and your experience. And of course, you and I have known each other for a while, so but haven't gotten a chance to chat with you. So this gives us a great opportunity to catch up here and hopefully for our listeners to learn something from you. Hope um, so. I wanted just to, as as usual, when, when I'm interviewing someone from uh, a recent issue of Multilingual, I've pulled up some quotes here. And so let me just bring up some stuff on screen here uh, from your article. And page 42, if you're following along at home, guys. But let's jump right into it. You, you mentioned in your interview, you said, 
The supplier side teaches flexibility, responsiveness, customer engagement, and heroics. I love that. I'm from the supplier side <laughs> myself. Uh, it's a service industry, which means you get what you get and just do your best to deliver what is expected. It's rare on the service side to impact an incoming process. Possible, but rare. So that's speaking about the working on the vendor side, essentially, which mm -hmm. you have experience doing. You were at Deluxe for a number of years. But you also have a lot of experience on the client side, you know, working with Intuit, Google, now Workday. And you say on the client side, the same skills are fundamentally required because most of us are services partners within our own organizations. That said, on the client side, the expectation is that we all work to improve upstream processes. We're also in the business of learning, automating, and refining our processes and usually can expect a degree of predictability. Process improvement is always preferred over heroics. That said, sometimes heroics are still required. And oh, so much, so much good <laughs> little tidbits in here. But I love having these conversations with folks that have that experience both on the vendor and the client side because I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there, both from people that have spent their entire career on the vendor side as well as people that have spent their entire career on the buyer side. My, my first question to you would be, is um, how difficult is that to change from the vendor side to the client side or vice versa? Or, and you kind of touched upon it here, but are those <laughs> skills all transferable? Because I think there's this perception I've seen, um, I've held before, let's just be honest, that you know, in order to get a client-side job, you need to have past client-side experience and vice versa. What, what's your takeaway on that? So I do think that we make within our industry more of a barrier uh, for folks to move from the services side to the client side. Like I've certainly seen that. I think that a lot of it is similar and, and like the services nature of it does not go away. Yeah. You know, whether you are client side or whether you are supplier side, we are still a service profession. We still have stakeholders that we have to make happy and we can't always control when they're sending us what and the timelines that we have and all of that. So, I mean, my hit is the biggest difference if you look across the two areas would be there's an expectation. There's a deep expectation on the client side that you build the plumbing, you build the processes, you build an approach that will allow you to scale, to grow, to continue to do the work predictably, even when it shows up at the last minute. But that also means that you get to go upstream and talk to stakeholders and try to help them make their processes better as they work with you. Usually you don't get to do that the first time they send a train wreck your way. Usually that comes after the first yeah, train yeah, wreck. Yeah, they, they got to learn. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They've got to be motivated <laughs> to improve. Yeah, right? usually it's like, hey, we need this now. And then you get through that and you go, okay, let's not do that again. That same way ever, ever, ever again. Yep, and then you yep. go back and try to work, the, work through the processes and make it better. And that's pretty typical, I would say, on the client side. On the supplier side, it's so much harder to get a customer to change how they're doing, oh, sure. especially when they're in the middle of their own process themselves. So uh, I've also, you know, on the, on the supplier side, you don't always have the authority in the room, right. you know? So or I think the authority of the room or the credibility too. Mm -hmm. I, th I think there's also kind of this prejudice that exists 
where I, you know, I've seen clients react this way. It's like, oh, you're, you're the vendor, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, know your place. Like I'm the client, therefore mm -hmm. I know more than you. Yeah. And just saying like, I'm biased because I'm, I'm a vendor side guy. Right. So I'll just put that out there right now. I'm totally biased. But in my experience, the vendor often knows, I wouldn't say they know more, they don't have the depth of knowledge because they don't know the specific internal things that each client is dealing with um, that are specific to that organization. But they have a breadth of knowledge and experience mm -hmm. because, yeah, they're working on your program, but they're also working on 10, 15, 20 other programs. And they can know like, oh, this works really well for this other client. Maybe we can implement something over there. Yeah. They'll have best practices the client side may not have. Uh -huh. They'll also, they also know how it works within their process. Yep. And a lot of times client side doesn't dig deep enough to know how that process works. So they, you know, may have magical thinking about how things get done. So, so yeah, I think that um, I, the, the other piece I would add to that is we don't accomplish anything on our own on the client side. Like, <laughs> what can we deliver? Preach it, sister. Yeah, no. Well, what can we deliver on our own? Well, Nothing. and that can be said going down, to yeah. be fair, to be fair, that can be said about the vendor side too, because yeah. LSPs are hiring, they have their own supply chains, right? Yeah. This is true. So, this is true. And I say this yeah. all the time, the value that LSPs bring to the table are project management, vendor management, but mm -hmm. very rarely do you see an LSP these days with actual in-house translators. Yeah. So the value chain yeah. goes deep. Yeah, we're profoundly codependent by design as an industry, you know. <laughs> codependent by design, yes. And it, it's it's uh, it's a fascinating industry. I'm not going to say it's unique because I don't know what other industries are out there, but it's an industry that's really dependent upon the supply chain, this whole ecosystem in this industry that, that's been built up from the client side to these – you know, large LSPs that contract smaller LSPs that contract yep. the translators and it works. And every once in a while I'll see, and cause we, we run across a lot of, we work with a lot of different clients here at NIMSI and every once in a while a client will have a bright idea to cut out the middleman. Right. And usually this is someone like a VP or a director level person gets, shifted from another department into localization mm -hmm. they don't understand the value that the why mm -hmm. that supply chain exists and they're like oh i'm gonna i have this great idea that no one has ever had before and i'm gonna cut out the middleman and work directly with freelancers and you know have you had experience with that how's that work i out? have totally been part of that experiment in my past yeah <laughs> The, the only thing good I can say about that kind of an experiment, because I think there is something good to say about it. I think what most people who make that decision don't realize is how many PMs they're going to have to hire. <laughs> like really what the burden right. is. What, what are the internal costs going to change? Yeah. To? What are the internal costs that you have no idea what they are trying to figure out who's on vacation in which country at which time doing what thing, you know, um, and what other stuff are they working on? Like that's just... It, it becomes pretty tough pretty fast. But there is one thing that can come out of that that I have seen that can be goodness, especially for companies that don't understand how the process works at the vendor side at all. They don't have any visibility to it, mm -hmm. is you can get a much tighter awareness about how to make a better experience for the translators themselves. 
you know. So I do think it's possible to for that learning to come in in that process, but that's about it, right? Well, and that's exactly what I was manage a lot. Yeah, and I I was thinking that too when you earlier in the conversation you you used the words magical thinking. Yeah. And I resisted the urge to go down that, but now I'm going to go down that way. (laughs) I I think sometimes on the client side, um, folks. You know, the, so if I spend 10 years working for, you worked at Google, if I spend 10 years working at Google, I know really well how localization is done at Google. I don't necessarily know how localization is done at other places, but I know really well. And I'm going to conferences and I'm participating in industry events and I'm listening to awesome podcasts online. And I'm hearing these other people from, let's say, Facebook or Amazon or Microsoft, you know, my competitors so to speak you know my colleagues my peers and they're saying oh we have this new system that does x y and z and they're out there bragging about all of this cool stuff and i start thinking oh i want some of that cool stuff right and it's i think they can sometimes get this misperception of like what's real and Mm -hmm. what's marketing and bragging to i mean to call it what it is right yeah and You know, I've read RFPs um, before helping clients respond to RFPs where it's like literally the depth of it is we want you to propose how you're we, – we want to include AI in our workflow. So how are we going to use AI? And this is like five years ago. This isn't today, <laughs> right? And it's like, okay, some someone went to a conference where they talked about AI. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that better show up for procurement to pick up, you know, this particular plan. Like that's required now in all of the procurement cases, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And you talk about uh, procurement a little bit in, in your article, managing procurement. So going to the, the client side of the equation, you said, well, first of all, my first question is you, you mentioned a lot of your job is working upstream and working with your internal stakeholders who are essentially your clients yeah. um, for all intents and purposes. Yeah. And thank you for not using the term educating because I, I hate that <laughs> term. I think it's kind of pretentious. People don't like to be educated, but they do want folks that are interested in helping them solve their problem. Um, so my first question is, if, if I'm on the client side, um, as you are currently, how much of my time is spent upstream managing internal stakeholders or working with internal stakeholders and how much of is it is it spent looking down so to speak at the supply chain you know what i i would say what i wish and what i always do are not always the same thing so everyone's a hypocrite (laughs) like what you get it hooked into um i try i try to always have on my calendar strategic stakeholder outreach and be presenting and be sharing and be engaging either with new stakeholders or with existing stakeholders to keep them informed of how we're doing at kind of a high level. Like my job is to hit a certain level across the organization. The managers under me have a job to hit the next level and, and all the way down the organization, there's a responsibility to engage with our stakeholders. Um, So I think, it, it's funny to think about it, but I actually think in in some weird way we're in sales. You know. Yeah, I say that all the time. Our job is our yeah. job is to go out and talk to all the teams <clears throat> that aren't working with us 
to get them to work with us. Our job is to find the people that are working with somebody else on the slide and it didn't even show up and procurement yes, didn't know it. Slide it through the procurement it. process and under all the radar. Those yeah. Into the fold. Yeah. And sometimes it can take a long time to find all those little things, especially in the international field where there may be something hidden under admin yeah. that you don't even know exists. But I do think that, you know, hurting the stakeholder hurting stakeholders and hurting everyone so that they are working with your business is really important. And and aligning at a high level with stakeholders so that we don't create extra friction below in the process in working with those stakeholders. So that's like kind of my job is open the door and make certain that we have high level expectations and and then we begin working with them. And then usually it most of the time things go pretty smoothly. It may look rugged and rough inside our organization. But generally, the stakeholders don't don't have that same experience. Well, and if you're providing a good service, because here, here's the crucial component, because um, I couldn't just tell client side folks to go out there and engage your stakeholders and get them to work with you. Like, first, you got to make sure your own house is in order. They've got to have a reason to work with you. Because if they're exactly. like working with their own translation vendor, for example, and it, yep. the process is going swimmingly, but the localization department is a hot mess, why would they come work with you? Exactly. Yeah. Right? I mean, you have to, I mean, in general, I look at what we do as in support of the company strategy that we're part of. Mm -hmm. So where possible, try to build in and hook to that company strategy so that we are solving the problem the company's solving and not something different, right? Yes. So that helps because everyone should be aligned on the company strategy. So yep. that's a good place to meet stakeholders yep. is in that strategy space if you can find an alignment place. I think the other thing is sometimes it takes time. You know, sometimes it can take a long time to get a team that might be used to working with another vendor to finally want to work with you as a team. And one approach I've used that has worked pretty well over the years is to take that vendor on you know, so basically, okay, fine. That's your vendor. Yeah. Then one of our vendors yep. will make it work. And then the team works <laughs> with TMs and glossaries yeah. and yeah. best practices. And we'll work with yeah. that vendor and get them at least better attuned within our process. And we may not want 20 of them. And I've seen a stupid number of vendors to have at oh, yeah. different points in time. Oh, yeah. You work with them and sometimes that works out great. Sometimes they're a really good adjunct to your vendor channel. Sometimes it's it's more of a get them into our channel and get that new stakeholder comfortable working with our team as the face, mm -hmm. yeah. as the front, as the process owner. Trust building. And what yeah. And what often happens, I think, is over time, because they get used to working with our team and recognize, wow, there's somebody who cares about my stuff. There's somebody who will make certain my files aren't going to be bad and, and the process is going to work and they're following up with a vendor. When they get used to that and they get comfortable with that, a lot of times they don't really care who the vendor is underneath. And then the right decisions can be made about which vendor for which work. Um, so I think the most important thing is get them in your family first. Yeah. You can, and I've, and, I've and then, and then one, one, one to, your... to my vendors and yeah. said, go, go use these guys. We like them. They just can't do it all. You know, they're one of, one of our family, but yeah. so, so can't... wait until you fire their favorite vendor 
and replace don't them with your own. Don't do that. Don't do it immediately. <laughs> Good luck working with them because everything you do, will they'll be keeping score. Exactly. It's much easier to bring their vendors into your family. And if they're a good vendor, then if possible, they may make sense under one of your other vendors. And that might be a relationship to say, hey, we'd like you guys to work with them. We don't want to send, yeah. we don't want to send projects to five vendors. We'd like to send it to one, but this is one of the vendors we think you should work with. And that, I've done that a lot with like language specific vendors mm-hmm. because you end yeah. up, you know, small, you start out small, you get a lot of language specific vendors, but it's not practical to send projects to six vendors. Yeah, we, I'm working on this process audit right now for mm-hmm. a client of ours where we're taking a look at their program. And so I'm interviewing all of their vendors and they've got like five or six, you know, not an mm-hmm. egregious number. And, you know, my traditional, my standard out of the box advice is like try to consolidate, maybe not down to one. Single sourcing comes no. with its own issues, but, you know, mm-hmm. two or three. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm looking at like this specific case and I was like, yeah, five or six works for you because, you know, they've got a separate vendor for China because they're China. China is a priority market and the local office really likes this vendor. Right. Um, they've got a separate vendor for Japan because, I mean, do I need to even elaborate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, and, you know, French Canadian, they've got their own vendor because that's a regulated market. And so it's like, th- there can be really good reasons for, for that. Every program's unique. Yeah. I've, I've definitely worked in circumstances where the nature of the work that was flowing through, it wasn't a problem to send yep. to different language vendors as an approach. It was practical for that kind of work. Yeah. Where I think it gets tricky is when you're sending lots of things across lots of different markets and it's pretty much all this big stack of stuff going all around the world. That's where the the monolingual or or single uh, country and language vendors gets harder to manage. Agreed. Yeah. And you talk in, in your article, let me just pull it up here since we're on the topic of vendor selection. You say, uh, so let, let's talk about this, like how, how to pick vendors. You mentioned if your practice and language deliverables are small or just getting started, don't go with a big vendor. They will ignore yeah. you. Yes. Some controversy there. Find, <laughs> find, find a vendor who matches your size and market expectations and work with them to mutually grow. If you are huge, don't go with the little guys. They'll struggle to scale, and it's not fair to beat them up when they don't have capital or systems to flex at scale. The more vendors you include, the more work for you and your procurement team, and it's not appropriate to put lots of vendors through this time-intensive, costly process. So many good points in here. And <laughs> I, 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 where I see this happen mm-hmm. a lot it, or frequently is when a localization director changes companies and goes from, let's say, uh, Google. No, I'm not even going to use names, but goes from a company where they're managing a localization program. And they've got 15, 20 internal local PMs, and they've got a $20 million budget to spend mm-hmm. on their supply chain. And then they get a good job working for a startup with, Mm-hmm. $1 million, if uh-huh. that, of budget. Uh-huh. To spend on. And they think, oh, I really liked working with We Localize, Lionbridge, RW, whoever it may be, right? I really liked working with Lionbridge at my past job, so I'm mm-hmm. going to bring them on board for my new job. And mm-hmm. they are just disappointed um, because they're not going to get the same level of service from Lionbridge for $1 million as they did for $20 million. Yeah. 
It's absolutely the truth. And I, and I actually think this is one of those things you learn through this. A lot of people learn this through the school of hard knocks. I learned it early through the school of hard knocks myself. It's the only so, way to learn. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and what I learned in that process was my great big vendor from the past was exactly that. If you have 20 million to spend and then you have 2 million, you are no longer that interesting to them. Unless they can see your 2 million growing and they can see a pathway towards that, um, there is a good chance you need to, you need to swim in a different pond that fits your, you know, the scale of your work and where your maturity is at the time. So, yeah, I think it happens a lot, especially in our industry where, where people start in a big shop and then they end up at a startup. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I don't want to like throw the line bridges and we localizes of the world under the bus. Um, they say like, Because it's easy to think like, oh, well, they're just in it for the money. They don't care about us. And it's like, no, because I I come from the vendor side. It's like they do care about you, but the way that they are structured, they are optimized to be able to make a margin working on $10 million projects. And because I've had this before, I worked at a big, a big guy. And if you give me a client that's sending me $100,000 a year, which a lot of smaller LSPs would be thrilled with that client. Mm-hmm. But if you give me that as the program manager for that client, there was literally no way for me to be able to make a margin just because of the mm-hmm. way our structures were set up. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I didn't want to give good service to the client. It was just really hard because of the way that we were set up. Exactly. I actually even had the experience many years ago, many, many, many years ago, where I went to one of those big vendors before I learned the school of hard knocks and they said, you're too small for us. We won't work with you. I, and bless them respect, for that. Respect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, bless them for that because that's actually much better than saying, yeah, sure. Come on board when we will ignore you as best we can. <laughs> a great. No, I have a lot of respect for that. And then, yeah. uh, and hopefully, cause I've done that before working at a big vendor yeah. and then hopefully they would say, Oh, by the way, here are some, other vendors exactly that in we your would recommend. range you know in your specialization you might try there instead yeah yeah, yeah i think it's, so- it's, it's something i it's something i encounter almost every year at industry events is meeting somebody new who's coming in and they'll always ask what what vendor should i go hire and it's like how big are you and what are you doing and what space right. are you in and then let's and talk about which gms is the best model. And, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. Um, yeah, so on vendor, sorry, I was checking these different slides here. Where do I want to go from here? I kind of want to go into quality because we got a lot of, we got a lot of topics here and that's how you and I first met working on a quality program, I think, but the quality is encapsulate, encapsulates a lot, right. And what you're doing and referencing back to our beginning conversation about aligning with company stakeholders. And Mm -hmm. like what's important to the company should be important to the localization program. Like one thing I say over and over again is nobody cares about your LQA scores besides you. They just don't. It's It's our underwear. It's very important underwear to us. Yeah, it is. It's not that it's It's not important important to us. Although I would argue with that in one way. Okay. I will argue with that in one way. I had the experience in the past of having a a super senior leader who spoke a certain language, 
who had an impression of our team's quality that was five, six years old. Okay. So a six-year out-of-date impression of how good of a job we did in that language that she was a native speaker of. Okay. And there would really be no way that I could ever convince, I mean, she's busy. She's not spending her time looking at our quality, right? So there'd be no way that I would really change her mind about the past. But what I was able to do with data over I was gonna about, say you need data. Right. about a year, it took about a year. Every time I met with her, I would show her the data on how we had improved and what our stakeholders thought, what our stakeholders said, our internal scores, our stakeholders feedback. I would share this information and within a year, she was like, and we've really improved the quality. You know, so sometimes it takes, sometimes the LQA score can be useful in tandem with what your customers think right. for your stakeholders. That's fair. Especially when they hear anecdotal no noise here and there. Well, what I've found is LQA scores are important, but they're becoming not enough. So they're important, mm -hmm. but not sufficient, I would say. And for LQA scores, like what I would say about LQA scores is they're a great place to start a conversation because if there's no data, there's nothing to talk about. Exactly. Quality becomes, hey, I heard from my cousin that there was some bad stuff on the website. Mm -hmm. uh, like, okay, yeah. where do you take that conversation? Right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think you... I think the reason you measure quality is so you can work with your vendors yes. and you can work with the linguists to improve and you have a conversation point on why this is a stylistic error, why this is, you know, a terminology mistake or why, you know, yep. something that was right for the type of a deliverable that was being done. So it helps. I think it's, it's very difficult to have a conversation with someone about the quality of their work. We ask our people to do this all the time. Yep. And what LQA scores help us do is have that slightly uncomfortable conversation mm -hmm. about the work in a more objective manner yep. that is easier to do. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't talk about the work, it will not change. Yes. So if you don't talk about it, if you don't go through it, you can expect it again and again. So yep. silence will produce the same results. And and I think a lot of times what's interesting in our space is that we may have 20 awesome linguists working on a language in support of that language, and they're all great. But if they're not cooking the same meal, <laughs> it's it's going to be a messed up kitchen, you know? Yeah. So the LQA scores matter for building that alignment, building that consistency across a language deliverable so you can come out with a deliverable that looks like one voice that mm -hmm. looks like uh, the same company and not you know Some everybody just different right yeah. a lot of quality is just about consistency right mm -hmm. and well and yeah. we can have that conversation next is like how do you define quality but um <laughs> from from the interview from multilingual you said without standards quality is impossible Without customer ownership and engagement, vendors won't improve. Goals and KPIs are super useful, but won't work without without support. Lastly, when a vendor suggests an improvement, if possible, act on it. The vendor-client relationship is a partnership. 
At the source of this relationship are translations and reviewers who are learning every day what is expected. So quality takes time, focus, data, and continuity. Yeah, and it's not instant. It's not instant. No. It takes time. Yeah, and I, I hear this. You know, I was just talking to a client the other day, where they're looking. You know, they're not happy with their quality of some priority languages, and they're working with a well-known LSP. You know, this isn't some rinky-dink operation, and. You know, they're considering going to RFP. They're considering replacing them. They're considering bringing someone else. Up. By the way, this is a single sourced. This is why I'm not into like this. Don't put all of your localization eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. But they're looking into hiring another LSP. And my first question in such such scenarios, and it's a common scenario, is, well, what have you done with your current vendor to work with them to bring that back up? Right? Yeah. Because that's not only... And business is business. You don't owe them anything, but, you know, someone say you do. But I wouldn't say, that, like, you owe it to them to give them the chance to improve, but I would make the argument that, hey, look, bringing on a new vendor is going to be a big pain in the butt. You really owe it hard. to yourself because take the yes. easy path. Take the wide road right. of working with your current vendor. And also, if you haven't done the work and investigated and, like, audited your own processes – Maybe you're the problem. Yeah, I, I really, really agree with you. I think that the effort to swap out a new vendor is huge. Yep. And, and to, the result's not guaranteed. And if you haven't figured out how to get quality with your current vendor, you definitely won't figure it out with the next because it isn't the vendor usually. Right. There might be sub-vendor issues underneath and things like that. But by and large, the quality processes, we have to be part of that on the client side. If we are not part of that and do not own our piece of that in helping them be successful, they will not be successful. Right. Um, it's also hard to onboard new vendors. So mm -hmm. whenever you get a new one, you know, it's not the t it's not the vendor that anybody ever wants to work with. No. It's an investment that takes years to get there and everyone will do their darndest within the team to go any place else rather than to that new vendor. Yep. And so that's hard. It takes time to make the relationship work mm -hmm. and to start over is to just rinse and repeat and do it all over again. So yep. Yep. the only time I would say that I might disagree with that is if the vendor support model is so wildly different that it does not support the way that the business works. So like if your workflow processes and the way that you work and the way the vendor is set up does not support oh, yeah. that happening without a tremendous amount of friction, yeah, like if that's you're, a if wrong you're, vendor fit. Yeah, so like if you're using SmartLink and the vendor refuses to work in SmartLink, yeah, get rid of them, right? Like Yeah, I mean, there are things... There are things like that that can be problematic or yeah. if, or if you have, um, I mean, it, it is about ma matching your processes to also the right kind of vendor. Yeah. Like if you are super technical with lots of uh, plugins and lots of APIs and lots of automation that you're regularly introducing that came with about 10 minutes notice, mm -hmm. you want a technical vendor that can at least partner with you in pain to try to right. solve around that, right? Um, a non-technical partner would just throw bodies at it and you'll never be profitable for them. Yeah. And so it'll be it'll be challenging in a different way. But so I, I think like the way this conversation has gone has like this 
exception that we're saying, oh, you know, don't just jump to replace a vendor, except blah, blah, blah. I think it's kind of a proven our original point because our original point was don't immediately replace a vendor just based upon quality. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And now we're not talking about quality. We're talking about the services. We're talking about and the process. cultural fit, the process. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I think yeah. those are much better reasons to look into yeah. replacing a vendor. And, and odds are good where if there's a quality issue, especially like you'll see it with specific markets like Canadian French, just a hard market. It's Every hard. place I've ever worked in my entire life, it has never been an easy market. It's hard. Um, and so like when Canadian French matters to your company, you're always kind of like, oh, my God couldn't we care more about just France? (laughs) So, I mean, it's a hard, hard market to get the good resourcing in because we're competing with the government. We're competing with everyone else. And, and it's always hard and it's hard pretty much across all the vendors. Yeah. Well, because all of the really qualified translators are working for the government, (laughs) making good government money with nice, secure jobs. They don't want to be freelancers working for your OSP. Yeah. I mean, it's been set up to be a really, really hard market. Yeah. And so, you know, I wouldn't. I and would the never... cost of failure is high too, yeah. because it's regulated. Yeah. So if you mess up yeah. your localization, you could be literally facing fines. It's all of those things. So yeah, I think that's one of those where you just have to work over time to get the relationships with vendors and sub vendors, like that. That whole little family of vendors to support the work takes time to build, and it takes trust to build, and it's not overnight. And and it can be pretty rough while it's being built yeah and keeping on the top of equality there's another uh quote that i pulled here so we talked kind of about the implement implications or the practicality of quality but what is quality right the nuance (laughs) of quality exactly so you, you mentioned quality is similarly nuanced first step is always determining what level of quality is appropriate and what the customer needs and expects. There is a spectrum from raw MT being okay to trans creation. And I could take that even one step further and go to in-market copy creation. Right? Yeah, you create your own thing exactly. or just creation. You know? Or just creation. Hey, yeah. We're just going to do that video in that market. We're not going to translate anything. Exactly. Know? Which is getting more feasible with large language models these days, but that's a whole, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into that. A today. whole nother can of worms. Yeah, exactly. You say, I believe the one thing that impacts quality the most is assuming ownership to support the vendors to continuously improve. So, yeah. I mean, this question is, I ask this all the time, what is quality? And it's not because I don't have an answer. It's because when I'm having a conversation with Loy about quality, in order to have a meaningful conversation, I first need to know what your definition is. Exactly. Right? And I think actually if, when you look at this question, the hardest thing about this question is there is very often um, a quality expectation on the customer or on the stakeholder side that may not even be in alignment with our own internal practices and processes because we like to do the very best work we can do. It's really hard to do the second best work that we can do. You know, like that's hard to get motivated to not make it great have you ever had like a negotiated contract with like quality levels so you oh, you'd yes. pay this for premium quality this oh, for yes. medium quality this for base. i hate yeah. that because it's like yeah. how so what you're gonna pay me a little bit less and i'm gonna like leave a few typos like how do i do yeah. that yeah i think the the reality is nobody does this nobody gets up in the morning to do a mediocre job right like who is wired that way no one is wired up that way Everyone gets up in the morning, especially and wants not to linguists. Linguists are especially, passionate about their work. Yeah, right? 
So that this is where I do believe so much of what what has has shifted in the industry over the last several years is we still expect linguists to do all that awesome great work but what we've done is intercepted it with a process that kind of dictates what's possible from a quality output side and how much review do you do is it full translation is it mt plus post edit as a means of determining where the effort should go because if we leave it to the linguists everything is going to be at the highest level effort so it has to be a managed process at some level the um and 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 decisions do need to be made about like what is very visible what would embarrass us if it's wrong? Right. What does what a salesperson have to stand in front of? Or what does a trainer have to stand in front of with customers in the room? Like those are a different level of quality expectation than perhaps a guide I'm reading on my own that I don't even, you know, that I'm Some referring to as a reference. Knowledge-based article that gets or a blog that, a year. that lasts 10 seconds on, on the web. Yeah, or exactly a translated document that they already read the English one because it was more time sensitive. And so this is just a nice to have now that's a little bit later in the process. So that's hard. I actually think the hardest part about it is, is really within our own world um, managing the quality expectations because our customers are usually way more comfortable with a nuanced approach and they have a good sense of like, this is visible. This isn't, so you do have that. Cause my next question is going to be, so how do you have those conversations with your stakeholders? Like if you're on the client side and you go to them, because if I don't know anything about localization and you come to me and basically ask me, Hey, I'm going to manage your translation, but I have a question for you. Does it need to be good? Like <laughs> I'm going to look at you like you grew a second head, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah. of course I want it good. So how, how do you even start I, those I conversations? Think the only, I do think that this is where also engagement matters at all parts of the organization. Okay. So having folks in the market that are talking to the local stakeholders makes a difference. Okay. Having folks talking to the central teams makes a difference. And there's, there's often a very different picture on the central teams is like, this is what I can afford to spend and I want to get this much done. So if this is what you need to do to get this much done, I'm good with it. And in the market, they'll be like, yeah, but in Japan, it really needs to be so much better than this. Yeah. And so there's sometimes this kind of a nuance on how you might manage in a region or the awareness of the visibility that you might have on the ground that you might not have centrally. So it's a balance. It's This is not science. There's a bit of art in all of this. And I think as well, it helps when there is data, like when you can actually, when you actually can say, this is how many eyes are on this deliverable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or these are the role. This is the role of the eyes on this deliverable. Yeah. Uh, that can make a big difference in the conversation. Data, like, data is a love language. Data it's, helps it's the sixth love data. language. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Well, it just like it helps our just like it helps our teams when have a hard conversation around quality. It yeah. helps us as leaders sometimes have a hard conversation around you know this is this is what we're going to do for this deliverable and this is why. And, you know, no more, uh, never so true as when you're talking to the people holding the purse strings, you know, Mm -hmm. procurement Mm -hmm. and finance. And -hmm. you talked a little bit about that in your your multilingual article. You said the biggest challenge is Mm -hmm. always funding. 
even under the best of circumstances. Having country revenue targets to balance against the cost is essential. When cost is factored against revenue, it's often a no-brainer. To do this, build a partnership with the selling side of the business so that a viable business case can be created and is mutually supported. Fundamentally, sales and executive leadership need to agree market expansion is needed. Once global companies become mature, adding languages is usually a combination of business drivers and customer need measured against cost. So you're talking about building a business case for localization. You're talking about the, you know, this, this thing, this topic that will never die and should never mm-hmm. die, which is the ROI of localization, mm-hmm. right? How, so yeah. I'll just ask you, how do you measure the ROI of localization? So the most basic way to measure it is if, if you're not transiting for a market, so say you're not, you've done no translations for a market that the company cares about mm-hmm. and they're selling right here. <laughs> And you translate for the market and you finally give them the stuff they need in order to have something to sell. You should see their revenue. Yeah. So A-B testing is what you're talking about. A-B testing, fancy A-B testing, essentially. Yeah. And or or you prove it in one market and then you follow with more and you continue to prove it. If if you get a business case approved, but there's no follow-up on whether any revenue came from it, it can be trickier to get your next business case approved. Fair. Right? Makes sense. And, and I do think that there is a, um, and this is where it matters, like what are you spending your money on? Are you spending your money to perfect one small thing that's not helping your company sell and helping your company grow? You're better off doing more things, sacrificing a little quality for the short term to mm-hmm. actually give them something to sell because by the time that sales cycle kicks in, you have time to start working through and improving the quality as you go. Yep. And so that does kind of depend upon your deliverable and the nature of your work. I mean, we're not, it's not aerospace and it's not medical that, that I'm chiefly ever involved in. So yeah, nobody's yeah. going to die if that translation is wrong for yeah. a month and then we fix it. Um, but that- I do think that that's, that's hard. But sometimes that's very much the trade-off to make is to help the company get to the possibility of generating revenue in markets. And the very first thing is language. Like that's first. The second thing is, does it work in this country? Is it right? Is it appropriate product feature? And then you get into support and all of, you know, can you support all those other things? But the first thing is language. Because if it's not in their language, they are not going to buy it. Well, it should be. The first thing should be languages. I, I don't know if you've had this, but I've seen this a lot of times is where a client working on the vendor side, a client will come to us and say, we need all of this stuff, this entire product, the, all of the help documentation, everything localized into Portuguese for Brazil. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it needs to be done in three weeks. And it's like, okay, why? It's like, oh, because we sold a big deal in Brazil. And part of the contract is we need to deliver a localized product. Right. So mm-hmm. it should, but some, sometimes the, you know, the tails chasing the dog. Uh, yeah, that can happen. It yeah. so can happen. And, which is, um, which is fine as the point that you made earlier is I don't care if you're vendor side or client side, we are service providers and mm-hmm. we, you know, you can sit here and complain, complain about, Oh, we didn't get forecasting. Oh, we don't have this eh, work still needs to get done. Yeah. It's some and heroics those, to use your word. Yeah. It is where the heroics happen. Yeah. You know, the, it, it's so much harder actually to, it's funny because we spend all of our time trying to get funding for what we do, 
But one of the hardest things is doing when you get the funding. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's incredible pressure when you get the funds. <laughs> that's when and the dog catches a tail. You have to, okay, we got funded for that, which means great, we can do this, but it means, oh no, we have to do that. You better have you good know? good partnership in your supply chain, is all yeah. I'm saying, because yeah. otherwise you're in it alone. Hey, we yeah. have a question from, from chat. Uh, Daniel asks, can you please explain how software internationalization impacts localization quality? Oh, this is, I this love is a good this one. question. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so this is how I view internationalization. If, if you don't have a good practice for internationalization, you've not built that in and partnered with your engineering teams and set standards and implemented tools that help check those things and and uh, arm wrestled them to some level of compliance and participation in bug fixing. Everything that you don't check for from an internationalization standpoint, you will absolutely be blamed for linguistically from a quality standpoint. Because our, your customers don't know it's an internationalization bug. They don't care that it's developers problem. They just think it looks really stupid that this strings in English or that the date format's wrong or that the same label is used in 27 places, but it only makes sense in one. Um, or that you've cobbled together a sentence and it includes three different moving parts and there's no way to make a sentence out of that. that they, they don't want to hear it. Not, their, not their problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know? all, all they care about is they have an angry customer on the phone. Yeah, and, and, and it will come to your team to research first. Yeah. So all international issues may start with engineering, but they land on our doorstep. I was gonna, that's my next question we is whose responsibility? Yeah, who, yeah, whose responsibility is internationalization? Yeah. Is it? It's in almost every company, it is the engineering team's responsibility. Yeah, it's kind but, of a silly question though, because yeah. the better question would be as you, who cares? Um, who cares? Like who gets blamed if it goes wrong? We care yeah. and we get blamed. It doesn't matter whose responsibility it is. Who's who's going to be fired if it's The wrong, bug lands right? first in our plate and then we pass it along. Yeah. But the other thing about internationalization, I think this is the hardest thing about it, is it's like a lot of little stuff. Yep. And yep. because it's a lot of little stuff, not a single one of those bugs is ever going to be, well, rarely going to be a P1. Or even a yeah. P2. Yeah. So they're very, very low level bugs. So good luck getting all your engineering team to fix all those low level bugs. Yeah. It actually takes a commitment and a caring and a mutual relationship. And, and it's really important when you get a new product to get that engagement early with them because they will never be as committed later. Yeah. So if you can get a lot of the a lot of it sorted early on. It helps a lot. So then you've got good hygiene, you know, then they're brushing their teeth every like day. That. Building healthy and habits. And not going to the dentist for the deep, you know, for the uh, knock me out and clean me to the bone yeah. exercise. Few, more, more flossing, less, fewer root canals is yes, the philosophy. exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm watching the clock here, Lloyd, and, and we're out of time. I think a, a good place to end this conversation, a lot of what we've talked about is stakeholder engagement and the importance mm -hmm. of that. And, just some very practical, a very practical question. Let's say I get hired tomorrow as localization director, new company. Who are the three people that I need to reach out to first within that organization? Uh, okay. You definitely need to have a finance partner because if you're brand new, you probably don't have any money. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably will need a procurement partner pretty fast because you may or may not have a vendor strategy in place. Okay. 
and you need to identify, I would say it's hard to find three, but I would say go find your most unhappy stakeholder. I like that. Do the yeah. the hard part first because they're going to have there, the best information. Yeah. yeah. You can't, it's hard to learn from a, a happy stakeholder because they're not going to be telling you things that are going wrong, but yeah. well, yeah. very good. All right. Well, any, any other closing thoughts before, before I start wrapping us up here today, Loy? No, it's pleasure. I, you know, I think this is a fun industry and yeah. I think the, while the problems are all very much the same for all of us, the nuances and what crops up at different points in time can vary quite a lot. So there's, there's a, a lot to always be learning, which is fun. There is always, always something new. It's good news and bad news, folks. There's always something <laughs> new, always a new problem to solve. So I will start taking us out. Thank you so much for joining us today, Loy. Um, lady, Thank you, Trevor. It was a pleasure. Yes, ma'am. Uh, ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time for today. If you enjoyed this Nipsey Live experience, then join us next time, which will be in September, because I'm going on vacation next week. So <laughs> I ain't going to be here. Um, I appreciate our guest today, Loy Searle. I appreciate my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights doing all the hard work. And I appreciate everyone in the industry who's filling out our surveys and contributing to industry research. And finally, I appreciate you, the audience, for all of the questions and comments in chat and everybody who is contributing to the conversation that we can all learn from. And with that, I look forward to next time. Cheers.